Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am the god of hellfire. And I am Kev. <laughs> the god of... Uh, Runcorn. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody loves Runcorn. That's <laughs> where your chemicals come from. <laughs> okay, welcome to Album Clash, guys. We are simultaneously this week starting the final clash in our beef season and seamlessly moving into a new season which is Britpop. Yeah, it's it's a good way to finish beef season because the this is this is a fairly beefy beef. Oh, it is. It's like a pint of bovril with oxo cubes uh, <laughs> floating round. Oxo croutons. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> so Kev, it was your choice. So do you want to just remind people what we're doing? So we will be doing uh, Blur's The Great Escape versus What's the Story Morning Glory by Oasis. The Britpop battle. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Well, we'll come on to that in a bit. But before we do, should we do some Can't Get You Out of My Head? I think we should, yeah. All right, you go first. What shite have you got stuck in your head? So I have no shite this week. There has been okay. nothing bad stuck in my head. Okay. Um, so I only have one song, uh, which is which is my good one. And it's an absolute belter. It's taken from Bobby Gillespie and Jenny Beth's album utopian ashes uh the opening track yeah. on it is called chase it down and it's a belter it's sumptuous and it does remind me of isabel campbell who was part of bell and sebastian uh when she did uh, a series of albums and duets with mark lanagan uh he of the <laughs> the gravel voice uh, except except these songs are well certainly the opening track it's a bit funkier uh, it's certainly bobby gillespie's best stuff for for quite a while i absolutely adore adore it and it was it's relatively new for one of my choices recently as the um, album itself was only released at the start of uh, this month at when we're recording which is july yeah uh, i haven't heard the whole album i have heard that song it is a banger very very good choice so i do have a shite song stuck in my head but there's no okay. there's no particularly funny story to, to say about it because well it's our fault that this shite song is stuck in my head because we talked about it on our last full clash. It's Say, Say, Say by Paul McCartney featuring <laughs> Michael Jackson. So obviously we talked about it when we went through Thriller. And for the last two or three, two or three weeks, I've been going around going, say, say, say what you want to. And now so are you going to, Kevin. I hate that song. It's so bad. It's fucking dreadful. The it video was wild. Oh, the video. Oh, God. God. It just makes me cringe. Grifters. Oh, yeah, it's awful. <laughs> It is awful. So can I move on from that? I think you should. Right. So my good choice. So uh, mine's not a new one by any stretch of the imagination, actually. Uh, and it's a very, very famous song. And it's another artist that we've spoken about, albeit very briefly, on a previous clash when we were talking about Pet Sounds. It's Wichita Line Man by Glenn Campbell. It's just utterly gorgeous, that song. And I need you more than want you. And I want you for all time. Oh God, I I adore that song. It is an absolute belter. I'll never hear a bad word against it. And 
so you know you know that I undertook a massive long pointless project of finding the best covers I could possibly find and there is <laughs> there is a belting reggae version which I which I really <laughs> like <laughs> doesn't immediately strike me as a song that lends itself to reggae but fair enough I can't, and I apologize that I cannot remember the artist off the top of my head but yeah I if I remember to I will try and uh, tweet it out when we um obviously tweet out the can't get you out my head choices and you see if if we if we'd prepared and planned this ahead you could have gone on whosample.com and found out. I could have easily, but there you go. Okay, good stuff. So nice and quick this week. An oldie and a newie, uh, but both great songs. So check them out. Yeah. So I suppose we should we should start going through our clash then and the beef. So if you were about in the 90s, you couldn't really have avoided this beef. It was fairly, fairly legendary. And it's, it's funny because... It didn't start off beefy. So at the was the ninety four Brit Awards, the ninety five Brit Awards. So the February ninety five, so celebrating music from nineteen ninety four. So Blur received the award for for best group, and when they were up on stage, Damon said that they should have shared it with Oasis. So there was, mm-hmm. at the time, there was a mutual respect between the two. Yep, that did not continue. Nope. <laughs> So yeah, it, was, it it seems that that one or both of the Gallagher brothers took that fairly magnanimous and um, nice gesture by Damon Albarn and, and Graham Coxon. He said much love and respect to them uh, as a as a piss take out of the fact that they hadn't won the awards. So Blur had won four awards at those Brits, as you said, including Best Group, and that's a record. <laughs> but yeah, I, I can't quite see how that was taken as a oh they've dissed us. I mean, I think if if everyone is actually truthful, the Oasis were very clear that they felt that they were the best band in the world and they wanted to be number one. And Blur were in their way. And what certainly emerged over the course of the upcoming months after after this, that they felt that they were Southern dandies, that they were Southern art school. Without wanting to jump ahead too much, the media definitely, definitely played that off. Oh Christ, yeah! It was as you said. It was it was northern working class against southern art school dandies, and the stage was set. So suppose so. Damon attends the some some might say celebration. So some might say was Oasis's first number one single. They have a big party to celebrate this. Liam, being Liam. <laughs> supposedly comes up to uh, Damon Alban and was screaming in his face, number fucking one, number fucking one. And supposedly make several derogatory remarks about Justin Frischman from Elastica. However, in later years, there, there has been another theory posited why Liam had somewhat of a issue with, with Damon Alban at the time. Is this the theory posited by Liam's older brother, by any chance? Well, and also by Alan McGee as well. So allegedly, and I we were very deliberately using that word there, Damon had slept with Lisa Moorish, who was Liam's ex and mother of his daughter. Liam Gallagher denies this. Damon has never, like, he has commented on it, but he, he just kind of gave a sort of nondescript answer where, well... A lot of things happened around that time. So I've got some quotes around that. In Daniel Rachel's 2019 book, Don't Look Back in Anger, The Rise and Fall of Cool Britannia, 
Noel is quoted to have said that Liam and Damon were shagging the same bird. Lovely use of language there, Noel. And there was a lot of cocaine involved. That's where the germ of it grew from. And as you said, in the same book, Alan McGee corroborated that view. Liam, in a tweet from April of last year, April of 2020, quite angrily denied it, as you'd said. He said, just for the record, me and Dermot Oblong, great nickname, by the way, never fell out over a girl or boy. We always had the crack. Things just turned nasty when Noel said he wished Dermot caught AIDS and die. We'll get on to that. Yeah. Not our kids' finest moment. So who are we to disagree with um, with Liam's tweet there? Well, and also uh, <laughs> referring to Damon as Dermot Oblong. <laughs> it's great. So Alan McGee also claimed that Diggsy's dinner from Definitely Maybe was in itself a piss taken a send-up of, of Blur. So he told in an interview Radio X, he said, I don't think Noel's ever admitted to that. It's a piss take of that Britpop thing. It was Noel proving that he could do that in his sleep. But Alan McGee's always been full of shit, so I don't believe him. Well, yeah, I was about to say that as unreliable narrators go, <laughs> Alan McGee is... <laughs> Noel and Alan McGee. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what certainly didn't help matters, Damon Albin was on Chris Evans' radio show. I mean, we are going so, so mid-90s here. Yep. And there was an Oasis song played, and he said it sounded a bit like status quo. That's not going to help matters. Not only, so it was wrong with it. Not only did he say it sounded like status quo, he then started humming down, down, deeper and down by quo to emphasize his point. <laughs> but I'm sure you're going to say that Noel took that well and, and didn't respond by taking things nuclear at all. No, like Noel Gallagher is well known as a level-headed fella and certainly wouldn't make any kind of awful statement. Go on. So, yes. So I I don't have noted down where he said it. So it was in an interview with The Guardian. He said that he wanted Damon and uh, Alex James to catch AIDS and die. Nice. Yeah. In the same interview, he also dismissed Blur as Chaz and Dave chimney sweep music. Thus, again, furthering the um, north-south divide. So you can't exactly say that either band did anything to diffuse the situation. Well, and the, the chart war itself, I mean, the record record companies certainly didn't avoid the, the, the entire battle there and because it, it made people a lot of money. Ex- well, precisely. So there's, there's been a lot of claim and counterclaim as to who did what in terms of moving release dates. It appears to be the case that Oasis had originally settled on 7th of August to release Roll With It. Then they found out that Blur had scheduled Country House for the same date. So to avoid a clash, seemingly, they pushed Roll With It back a week to the 14th. EMI then followed suit and pushed Country House back a week, suggesting that, okay, here we go. Let's have a battle. Let's see who comes out on top. And fuck me, it was everywhere. Oh, God. I mean, it literally made national news. It was on the nine o'clock news. Yeah. And it's, as, as you say, there, there are various stories knocking about. So as part of uh, a retrospective looking back on it, there was an interview with uh, one of Blur's publicity people. And, they said, and he actually said that prior to this, there was coordination between the bands to try and avoid to try and avoid a clash, but Oasis apparently brought theirs forward. Now, again, uh, as I said, 
claim and counterclaim. Yes, exactly. But what what I think is universally accepted is that at some point, Damon overfears that when they release their song, Oasis would be at number one and they would be num- they would be number two. They decided, fuck it, let's go all out. So as you said, it was fucking everywhere. So it made the nine o'clock news, as you said. The NME had the front cover, which said uh, the headline was the British Heavyweight Championship, mocked up to be like a, a poster of a, of a Muhammad Ali boxing match. So who won? As if you don't know if you listen to this show. <laughs> So Blair won won the battle. Uh, they had two hundred seventy thousand sales versus Oasis's two hundred twenty thousand sales, and there are <laughs> again claim and counterclaim. So Alan McGee claims there was some kind of dodgy barcode thing, which meant the Blair's sales were inflated. The, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, that is ridiculous. McGee's also claimed that the fact that Blue released two versions of the Country House single contributed to their inflated sales. Now, there might be something to that. Well, Alan McGee put that on the basis that, oh, well, they were being backed by EMI, who were a, who were a huge company. Like, exactly. Creation were backed by Sony. They're yeah. not fucking small. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Quite so. So, yeah, anyway, it went. So they both appeared on Top of the Pops the following Thursday. Now, kids, Top of the Pops was a weekly uh, show on the BBC on a Thursday evening where back in the, well, until MTV exploded, uh, it was the only place you could really see all the charts show on a Saturday morning what was going on in the charts. And so uh, on that, that week, they had both bands on. Jarvis Cocker was the host, so clearly the BBC are plugged into the whole Britpop explosion thing. And during Oasis' performance, Noel and Liam swapped roles. So Noel was the front man, Liam was playing guitar, basically taking the piss out of the fact that you can't play live on top of the pops, you've got to lip sync. During Blur's performance, set the piss out of Oasis, Alex James wore an Oasis T-shirt. Um... There was one person involved in this whole thing that was not at all comfortable with it all. No. So on the Sunday, when the the outcome of the battle was announced, Graham Coxon, he was uncomfortable with the whole thing. And it is said that he opened a window and tried to jump out of it. Well, it's been said by Graham Coxon himself. Yeah. Again, I'm full of quotes as usual. In an interview with Radio X in 2013, he said, our record company threw a big champagne party in Soho House in London, as you just said. I felt I was being forced into enjoying the moment and just wanted to be alone, really. I couldn't handle being part of that crowd, and so I tried to jump out of a six-story window. It was Damon who taught me out of it. Looking back, I should have enjoyed myself a lot more than I did during the Blur days. So that was 2013. But it, even as, as early as September 95, so a month after this all, all kicked off, he said in an interview with the NME, I'd have liked to have had a number one quietly, but it's probably no such thing as that. I wanted our band to be number one just because number one's a special thing, but it's become not special. I wish the releases had been staggered because then Oasis would have got to number one as well. We don't need this fake war, this preposterous chart war. Possibly the single greatest use of the word preposterous I've ever read. (laughs) And I suppose, the spoiler kids, the the genus of the breakup of Blair was from this, really. Mm-hmm. The Graham Coxon became increasingly isolated and distanced from the band because of this, because of how the single was marketed and 
the the band never really recovered from this as a collective unit. No, but creatively. Oh fuck yeah! Let's not jump too far ahead. So, I'd like so just be just before we finish about the battle itself, I do have a quote from Tim Burgess, and he is absolutely fucking spot on. So, he, Tim Burgess, if you didn't know from the Charlatans, neither band was on best form with the singles they were putting out. Country House almost sounds like a novelty song when you look back at some of the heights that Blur have have scaled, and Roll with It is kind of a flat pack oasis song. <laughs> I love talking. Nailed it. (laughs) Absolutely spot on. Uh, One other person who would agree with those sentiments is Noel Gallagher himself. (laughs) So, in a 2019 interview with Dermot O'Leary, he was typically understated about things, saying, The shame about the thing is that the two songs were shit. Country House is fucking dog shit. And Roll with It has never been played by anybody since the band split up. And that tells its own story. So there you go. There is also a quote from Liam where he did like, so he met Alex James in a pub a couple of months after, after all this. And Alex James said, yeah, but both of the songs were shit. Liam did not think so. He said, that's why I hate that band because (laughs) they put out something that they thought was shit. Whereas like roll with it was, was an amazing song. I mean, I'm giving a bit, a little bit away for next week, but it's not. (laughs) No. (laughs) But all big feuds like this have a happy ending, apart from maybe Prince and Michael Jackson. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Noel and Damon are busy mates now, aren't they? Yes, there has definitely been a rapprochement. Yeah, I think everyone's just grown up and moved on. Indeed. So uh, an interview with a newspaper whose name I will not speak in 2018, Damon Orban said, we don't talk about our past, we talk about our present. I value my friendship with Noel because he's one of the only people who went through what I did in the 90s. It's probably a good job he didn't talk about the past because, you know, he did say he wished he'd get AIDS and died. So <laughs> maybe it'll come up at one of their dinner parties. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think we I think we just move on from that. Yes, let's. Uh, so, yeah, two bands with a, a huge rivalry, albeit one which seems to have been stoked by record companies and or media. Okay, so we should do our top trumps round. Yes, we should. Uh, although I fear that because I'm leading on Great Escape, I'm going to get absolutely fucking annihilated here. <laughs> I think you might. <laughs> but I won last time, so I get to pick first. Okay. It's not a pretty picture. All right, I'm going to go critic scores first. Rolling Stone gave it four and a half stars out of five, as did all music. Pitchfork gave it 8.2 out of 10, and the NME gave it 9 out of 10. How can you match that? So you are actually leading me on that. So if I take the original Rolling Stone score, it was 4 out of 5. The Pitchfork was 8.9 out of 10. (sighs) NME, 7 out of 10. So I, I would say that that's... I think that's a draw. Okay, we'll give it a draw. To score, draw that. What about All Music? All Music was five out of five. Yeah, okay. So you're ahead on two, I'm ahead on two. It's, it's a score draw. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, score draw. So I'll pick again first. And I, I'm... Uh, I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm going to have to go charts. UK, number one. Same. Yeah, Okay. Uh, I think this is where I'm done. US, 
number 150. Number four. Oh, fucking hell. I knew it had charted well, but Christ. Yeah, I didn't realise it had done so well in America. No. So Great Escape, it was the first of Blur's albums to chart in the US. But, I mean, well, number four for Morning Glory. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this next week. This album broke them in the US. Really yeah. did. And then they, <laughs> then they fucked it. Well, yeah. We've, 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 we've been there already. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, I lose that one, so go on over to you. I, and I, I can't see me getting close to you on anything else, but go on. So let's go with our uh, sales. 22 million. I mean, it starts with a two. <laughs> About two and a half million estimated. Yeah. Which is still decent. No, it is still More decent. Than decent sales. It's just, you know. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's purple rain territory. 22 million. That's massive. It is, you know, it was a huge album. There's, there's no, there's no question about it. No, it was. All right, I'll go on then. So you're gonna go on. To Morning Glory, take the, take the awards home. What, what are you going next? Um, so I will go with me awards. Oh, <laughs> go on then. I came away with three Brit awards, including best British album. Well, Great Escape was nominated for that album, <laughs> for that award. Sorry, Great Escape was nominated for best British album of the Brits. Obviously, it didn't win it. It did win Album of the Year from Q in 1995, but um, yeah, three awards. You, you've won that. Yeah, and I suppose um, let's let's do the the Rolling Stone ranking. So in the 2012 list, um, 378. All right, in the top 500, fairly low down. Great Escape didn't appear in that list. <laughs> <laughs> However, it had it risen to 157 by 2020. Yeah, again. Great Escape didn't make the list. I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing. Well. <laughs> I mean, that's not a surprise. No. But it doesn't make for great um, competitiveness. No. So we'll we'll finish up with the uh, certifications. And I think we already know who the winner's going to be given the sales numbers. Yeah, go on. Okay, so UK, 15 times platinum. Oof, fucking hell. US, four times platinum. Wow, so that's four million sales in the US. Jesus. It's impressive. That is impressive. That is impressive. Okay, well, three times platinum in the UK. Uh, no certifications in the United States. The best I can do is that it went platinum in continental Europe, but... um. So I didn't win a single one there. No. I mean, clearly, what's the story is is the more successful in terms yeah. of, of the albums. It is. Although, as we will talk about over the next couple of weeks, uh, the initial reviews of both of these albums were somewhat contradictory. Oh, yeah. From what, what they have become to be seen as. Okay. Well, that's top trump. So I've lost 5-0 there with one draw. So... Um, I'm going to go away and lick my wounds and come back in our next clash with something that might do a bit better. <laughs> All right. So we've done the beef. We've done the top trumps. Should I start taking us through The Great Escape? I believe you should. Okay. It was Blur's fourth studio album. It was released on the 11th of September, 1995 on Food Records and EMI, as we've discussed. It was produced by Blur's longtime collaborator, Stephen Street. So he produced four albums in a row from Modern Life is Rubbish in 93 up to their self-titled album in 1997. 
It was recorded between January and May 1995 at Maison Rouge and Townhouse Studios in London. And in terms of the theme of the album, it completes something of a trilogy which started with Modern Life is Rubbish and then continued into Part Life, a trilogy around... It's sort of observations of British life. Yes. But this this one certainly is characterised by, I suppose, a, a growing loneliness and detachment, really. Yeah, this is very much more introspective. And in fact, several of the songs on the album, Damon Albarn has since claimed are somewhat autobiographical. Just as an aside, so Modern Life is Rubbish came out in 93, Park Life in 94, this in 95. To release three albums in three years, combined with all the touring commitments, like, that's a fucking phenomenal achievement. I know back in the 60s that was much more commonplace, but by the 90s it just wasn't. It's absolutely phenomenal work rate. Yeah, they were absolutely banging the albums out. And you can you can argue that that kind of prodigious work rate had had a massive detrimental impact upon all of the members really maybe not maybe not dave roundtree he seemed to be, to get through it fairly unscathed <laughs> but the rest of them christ definitely definitely and certainly graham coxon as we've as we've already discussed so yeah as you said it's a far more introspective album this one focuses on sort of detachment and dissatisfaction with suburban life in England, as we'll get into. So, I mean, we've talked about the beef, so that's really covered much of the background. So I guess it's just time to ask the question, how did you discover The Great Escape? And I'm pretty sure our answers are going to be fairly similar for this one and for Morning Glory next week, but go on. Yeah. So as we have... Well, we've not alluded to, we've very much stated quite openly, we were about at this time, when this album came out, I bought it. Like the, I didn't need introducing to it. Like I knew who Blur were. I, I had Park Life. I bought The, the Great Escape. There's, no, there's nothing really more complicated than that. Same here. I bought this album the week it came out. And uh, yeah, nothing complicated to it. So there you go. We'll be done in 10 minutes here. <laughs> <laughs> Artwork. The album cover is... Well, I couldn't find out who the photographer was. And and some articles I've read suggest it's basically just a stock image. So it's an image of a man diving into the sea from a fancy speedboat while his, his two mates look on. So giving that theme of the great escape, you know, escape from it all uh, on your luxurious speedboat. I would like to spend a little bit of time, and we don't usually do this, to talk about the photograph that adorned the back cover of the album. You're, you're familiar with the photo. It's a, it's a yes. yeah. So it's a picture of the band, sort of dressed as archetypal yuppies, surrounded by a computer monitor. Damon's on the phone. You know, very much businessmen doing business things. And the reason I want to mention that is apparently that image was later used in Japan as part of an advertising campaign to sell glasses. <laughs> Is that right? Because they've all got glasses on. <laughs> well, there you go. The only other thing I want to say about the album sleeve for The Great Escape is that much like part life, 14-year-old me, whilst learning to play the guitar, was extremely grateful for the fact that as alongside the lyrics, it also published the chords for every song, so I could learn how to play them all on the guitar. <laughs> 
I mean, the only thing I'll say about the cover is that, given what we've talked about, the themes, is it is quite deceptive, that cover. Yes, good point. I'm given that the lead single was Country House, which is quite an up song. It doesn't give you um, much of an insight into what you are going to be listening to. A very, very, very good point. All right, shall we go into the tracks? I think we should. We start off with Stereotypes. This was the third single released from the album on 12th of February 1996. It reached number seven in the UK and number 34 on the Eurochart Hot 100, which I'm going to talk about a few times in this clash, just because I like the name. (laughs) Eurochart. So the song is about a bored suburban housewife. She's sick of her stereotypical life. And she and her husband basically get involved in swingers clubs. Wife swapping is your future. You know that it would suit you. From what you've just said about the cover being deceptive, I would suggest that this is somewhat deceptive as as well. This is, to me, very redolent of what you've heard on Part Life. And as we'll go on, a lot of the album isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Have you written the same thing? So, first note, similar theme to previous album. (laughs) I mean, end of a century. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> but it, but, but it is, and, and 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 it seems to have been a deliberate choice for the first two tracks on the album to be more up, to be okay. You're used to something. Now we've brought you in. Now let's take you onto something else. Mm-hmm. What do you think of stereotypes? So, what I've tried to do when reviewing the songs on the album, I've tried to separate my reminiscence, uh, my original thoughts and feelings around them and try to listen to them just as songs as best I can from now or the perspective of, be- of now. It's a bit meh. It's fine, but it's it's not particularly memorable. It, it's, a, it's a funny old opener. I understand like it kind of links back to park life, but yeah, it's meh. That's, that was my overwhelming feeling of it. Okay. So there are certainly other songs on this album that I have written that about. And very much like you just said, I I came to this in exactly the same frame of mind. I haven't listened to Great Escape for over 20 years before we came to do this. And so I wanted to reappraise it. I like stereotypes. I did like it at the time and listen to it again now. I like it right from the start. You've got that jagged guitar riff that almost sort of punches you in the face right Mm -hmm. to start the album. It's not fantastic, but I think it's a very, very solid start. It's wry, it's a knowing, it's, as we said, takes you back to what you listen to in part life. Yeah, I um, I like it. I, th- I think maybe my problem with it, and it, it might be that it's slightly linked with a bit, a bit around Country House and the video for Country House as well, more particularly, is it's a bit of that, ooh, how's your father, carry on, music hall, shtick and maybe that's that's what i've got i've got again it no i get that and well we're going to come on to talk about that very shortly but again on later songs 100 percent know where you're coming from there and hold that for but this one for me i thought this song's got something to say yes there's that cheekiness but this one's got something to say in a way that others haven't so yeah. I like it. Fair enough. But it isn't it isn't fantastic. Whilst I've said it sounds a lot like stuff on part life, 
does it come close to certain the better songs on Part Life? No, nowhere near. So, so I suppose we should really move on to the to the next song, the beer moth of the album. We should. So obviously, we've discussed. It was the first single released on the 14th of August. Yes, it got to number one. It was their first number one single, one of only two to date that the band have had, the second being Beetlebum in 97. It's about a successful businessman, a city dweller, successful fella, <laughs> who becomes disillusioned with being caught in a rat race terminally, so moves to a very big house in the country. So when he was interviewed for the South Bank show, Damon Orban said that it was written about the former executive of food records, David Balf, who sold food records to EMI in 1994 and then moved to a, a big stately home in Bedfordshire. So that's what the song's about. Now, you've mentioned it earlier. We've got to talk about the video. What the, what the fuck? So the video was directed by Damien Hurst, the artist, features Matt Lucas, who went on to be in Little Britain, Keith Allen, who <sighs> Kev's a big fan of, and page three girl, Joe Guest. As you said, cartoonish, carry on. It takes off a fucking Benny Hill video. Ernie the fastest movement in the West. Yeah. God, it's, you look back at the video now. You're better than that. Well, exactly. You can, it's, you can see why Graham Coxon became so disillusioned. It was like, what the fuck is this? It's so campy. Yeah. Like, I understand that Park Life created a kind of image for them. And this this isn't leaning into that. That's You've done Del Boy going through the bar. You've lent so much. <laughs> you've fallen over. You're right. You're absolutely right. A fucking fantastic way of putting it. Yeah. Oh, loathsome, loathsome video. There is one other thing I want to say about the video, as well as the, the Benny Hills thing. It also apes the video to Bohemian Rhapsody. When the you get the, the blow yeah. me out breakdown, uh, you see the four band members in silhouette, exactly as Queen were in Bohemian Rhapsody. Just, before we move on, and, and we've already said it in, in quite exasperated terms, but it's easy to see how they got this reputation for being cartoonish and how they were dismissed as being, as Noel Gallagher said, Chaz and Dave chimney sweep stuff. It's like, you're playing up to it. You're better than that. As you said, you are better than that. As you'll go on to prove in two years' time, yeah. what is this? Like, you, you've bought into the into the shtick and listened to people around you, and you've lost, you've lost what you are. And as you say, two years later, you rediscover what you are and come out with some absolute gold. Absolutely. But yeah, okay, as you said, we should probably try and divorce what we think about the video and, and talk about the song. Just before you, you start talking about the song, are you aware that it was originally a Scar number? What? So Alex James, in an interview, said that it was an older song and the it was a Scar-like kind of song. Oh. <laughs> well, there's a Scar influence on one or two tracks yeah. that we'll come on to talk about. Oh, definitely. Now you come to say it, I can sort of like the brass. How how prominent the brass is makes more sense. And even the even the sort of and I can't think of a better way to say it. The sort of umpar rhythm of the guitar. Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go first on this if you don't mind. Sure. And this is probably nostalgia coming into play as much as I've tried to remove that. As cartoony and throwaway as this song is, I can't help but like it. I can't help but start singing along to the blow me out refrain when that comes in. 
I think Graham Coxon's guitar is quintessentially blur. It's not their best by any stretch. It's definitely better than Roll With It. I will say that. So what what I said in my notes, I understand why Tim Burgess said what he did about it, but I don't care. I do really like it. And when they reformed for Glastonbury and anyone who's seen the performance they did at Hyde Park, everyone, like they did it at a much higher tempo and everyone fucking went off because it was really, it was really good fun. Um, yeah. And the, the, the ref, the blow blow me out refrain elevates the song massively, hugely. Like if agreed, that's the best bit. If it if it didn't have that, then I would certainly probably feel a lot more negatively towards it. But like that that break absolutely mm-hmm. turns the song into something far better than than had gone before. Really, agreed fully. One more fact, if I may. Certainly. So the cover art for the single, The Country House, is a shot of Neuschwanstein Castle in Bavaria, which is famous for a few things, two of which I will name. Firstly, it's one of the places where the Nazis stored their stolen plunder, artworks and jewellery, etc. in World War II. And secondly, slightly more uh, uplifting, it was also the castle in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> Did not know that. Okay, uh, shall we go on to Best Days? Yes, let's go. Best Days is a song about the melancholy of basically realising that your 20s, no matter how humdrum they may seem, they are the best days of our lives. Other people turn around and laugh at you if you say that these are the best days of our lives. It's got a few things in there which, well, some seemingly obligatory references to London landmarks, in particular the Bow Bells, right in the very first line. Again, it's easy to see where the, the educated self versus the working class North came from when you got things like that in there. And there's a few more yeah. references to that dotted throughout the album. That's not a criticism so much because you write about what you know. You know, Shaker Maker was Noel Gallagher writing about what he knew from Manchester. So it, it is what it is. In terms of my thoughts on the song, I get... I get a distinctly to the end feel from it. It's nowhere near as good as to the end, but I do like the way that certainly the guitar riff, it creates a sort of wistful melancholy. Uh, you know, the strings mm-hmm. that come in and out as well, which sort of tug at your heart. I, I quite like Best Days, I have to say. It, it's This is the point in the album at which they go, all right, we've got you. You've had the single. You've had the song, which sounds like what we've done before. Now, this is more of what we actually want to give you. And I like it. So I said it does seem a slightly strange tonal shift from the opening two. I do like the song. I felt it's very kinks, uh, particularly yeah, the definitely. piano piano string section uh, reminded me of some stuff off uh, Victoria, uh, mm-hmm. the the album that Victoria's on, which um, escape, escapes my, uh, my memory at, the, at this time. It's a it's a decent it's a decent song. It is different from what's gone before and what's about to come up. So I hadn't picked up on the Kinks sound before you said it, but now you've said it. Uh, that's a really great observation, actually. But it is an odd change of pace, and then there's another slightly odd change of pace coming up. Yeah, into Charmless Man. So we will de- we will certainly get into this more. It's quite a sclerotic album. It's a bit messy. It's a bit all over the place, yes. and it doesn't really yes. flow well at all. A really good point. I think sclerotic is a good 
a good term as well. All right, so Charmless Man itself was the fourth and final single from the album released on the 29th of April, 96. Got to number five in the UK, number six in Iceland, and number 25 on the Europop Hot 100. <laughs> Damon Albarn has later described this song as the end of something, the end of Britpop, for us anyway. The title is obviously a reference to the Smiths, This Charming Man. <laughs> So, a little bit of sub-beef. The song is supposedly written about suede frontman Brett Anderson, who was the former lover of Damon's then-partner, Justine Frischman, as, as Kev said earlier. However, in an interview with Zoe Ball on Radio 1 in 1998, again, how 90s are we going? <laughs> no Kevin Greening. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> so in that interview, Damon claimed that the inspiration for the song was some graffiti in the gents' toilets at Grantham Station in Lincolnshire after he'd paid a visit to his grandmother. Whatever the subject, it's a song about a man who puts on airs and graces to fit in, but is ultimately always seen for what he is. You know, he thinks he's educated heirs. Those family shares will protect him, that will respect him. What do you think of Charmless Man? I, I do like Charmless Man. Uh, Graham Coxon's playing on it is great. It's really hooky. It's very catchy. The lyrics are brutal. And as we've discussed in our previous, in our in our bonus clash and uh, some of our other ones, I do I do like a, a song that's got a bit of venom about it. And this one probably got some some venom to it. Oh, I def- I choose to not believe what Damon told Zoe Ball. I think this is about Brett Anderson. I do as well. <laughs> So I similarly have said that, that I think Graham Coxon's guitar works great on this. It's the best song so far for me. Four tracks in, this is the best we've had so yeah. far. Yeah, I, I mean, as we, we both have soft spots for Country House, but it is the best song thus far. Yeah, definitely. Okay, on to Fade Away. So I said we'd have some conversation about Scar influence. This seems very, very Scar. The brass, the drums. It's a, it's a really odd juxtaposition from well, everything you've heard so far, really. So I noted down, it, it reminds me of, you know, the song Stereotypes by The Specials. It, like when I, was list, when I was listening to it, I got clearly those influences uh, coming through, particularly obviously the brass um, yeah. and, the, and how prominent Dave Roundtree's drumming is in the, in the mix as well. Fabulous drumming as well. Really, yeah, really, really good, good drumming. So in terms of what it's about, it's about a, a newlywed couple who basically both work dead-end jobs. They hate to try and achieve some sort of idealised version of married suburban life, but just end up drifting apart. So within the uh, the verse, he says, they settled in a brand new town with people from the same background. They kept themselves busy. Long hours kept them dizzy. Now when he's in, she's out. So again, that speaks to the themes that we've talked about, that disillusionment and detachment mm-hmm. of modern suburban life. Ah. Much as you said for stereotypes, I can't say this ever really grabs me. No. It's okay, but it's not what I come to blur for. No, I mean, the, the opening may remind me of the specials, but if I want the specials, I'm going to the specials. <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not a bad song. It's a bit unmemorable, and it's, yeah. made, and it's a bit bloated. It's a bit long as well. A very good point. I mean, I, I, I would give them some some credit for trying to take their audience in different directions and trying to expand their sound, but it just doesn't hit on this track for me. No, no, certainly not. Okay. On to top man. 
so this is a clear piss take send up whatever you want to say about the young suburban male shopping at top man going to the footy on a saturday going out binge drinking on the piss driving around in his souped up citron saxo uh around his estate uh you know just i'll just read the chorus t-o-p-m-a-n he's naughty by nature t-o-p-m-a-n on doubles and chases t-o-p-m-a-n he's a little boy racer t-o-p-m-a-n shooting guns on the high street of love would you say he was proper naughty <laughs> please do not bring to mind Danny Dyer I've got half a mind to stop this recording right Jesus Christ because like well everything that's brought up is very Essex oh god yeah it is it is it's all very Dagenham isn't it oh god yeah I've never been to Dagenham might be a lovely place probably isn't <laughs> I mean, the name doesn't doesn't ring out <laughs> like it's going to be akin to being in the French Riviera. No, good point. I mean, it, thematically, there's a lot of parallels with girls and boys. Mm-hmm. Sadly, that's where the parallels end because, God, it's so, again, cheeky chappy, poppy, that sort of synthesised whistle. This song irritates me. It, like, I don't like it. It it just never seems to do anything. Mm-hmm. It is the absolute epitome of album filler. There's yeah. nothing going on here at all of any interest, but it takes up some time of your life. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to this song. <laughs> what I can say about it is that it happened. Yes. But my life is now a little bit shorter from that. <laughs> so I, there are some interesting themes and issues to explore, and there is some there's some potential in this song, but it's just disappointing. It, it could be so much more than it is. It, I, it comes across as quite lazy to me. Actually, mm-hmm. they could have produced something very biting, in the similar way to Charmless Man's biting. Yeah. But they didn't. It's just light-hearted, frothy nothingness, as you said. Yeah, it's it could be a satire, it could be biting, mm-hmm. it could be critical, but it doesn't feel like that. It no. It feels like it's speaking to the top man. Exactly. Yes. Gaze at. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on. Fuck off, Danny Diet. <laughs> From Top Man, you go into the universal. Which you're not expecting that kind of elevation. You are not. Couple of facts. Well, one fact, really. It was the second single. It was released in November 95. It also reached number five in the UK, number 12 in Iceland and in Ireland. And in terms of the Eurochart Hot 100, number 31. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this was apparently originally demoed during the, the Park Life sessions. And it was, again, this is according to Alex James, it was all but abandoned until Damon came up with the string section when they were recording The Great Escape, and then it was mm-hmm. revived, thankfully. So the universal uh, sort of evokes a dystopian future in which the universal is some sort of drug that uh, is freely available to make people feel pacified, to make people feel, well, nothing. And I think this is another one where we need to talk about the video. Yeah, because as jarring as the video for 
country houses for everything that Blur purport to represent and to present themselves as the evoking a clockwork orange and the way that that video works mm-hmm. is perfect with the themes of it's absolutely pitch perfect yeah in it terms is. of the themes of the song it works it, it, it is absolutely right yeah it is absolutely right so it's directed by jonathan glazer uh, who has something of a of a esteemed portfolio of music videos so he for example directed street spirit and karma police by radiohead both mm-hmm iconic videos in themselves and as you said it really is influenced by clockwork orange the band are uh, dressed as droogs sitting in a highly sterilized sort of milk bar setting it's a really really good video that as you said is 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 the antithesis of what you've seen on country house as is the song i fucking adore this song it's it's beautiful yeah, it's it's great, and in this country, it's used as the backing for and has been for for a number of years for British, British gas, gas adverts. <laughs> but even even then, it still doesn't diminish how beautiful it is, and the the balance between the low key verse and the bombastic oh, chorus God, yeah. is it's beautifully done. It's so well measured. It's so good. It never fails to get me when it kicks back in towards the end mm-hmm. and you've got the brass and the strings. It's poignant, it's sorrowful, it's glorious. I adore this song. Yeah, it's it's just, it's a wonderful piece of work and it's one of Blur's best pieces of work as well. It definitely is one of the Blur's best pieces of work. All I will say is why doesn't this end the album? We've spoken previously, when we went through Sgt. Pepper's and Purple Rain, end big. Yeah. Fucking hell. End with this. This is epic. Don't go mid-album. No. I mean, when the days they seem to fall through you, just let them go. What more do you say? Yeah. I mean, there's the, we can't there's nothing more to rhapsodize more about this. No, exactly. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of music. Unlike the next song. <laughs> Not a fan, are we? <sighs> Mr. Robinson's Quango. So, again, for the kids, Quango is a largely pejorative term, an acronym for a quasi-autonomous non-governmental organisation, basically a body to which a government has devolved power, but which is still partly controlled and or financially funded by the government. Fun fact, both Kev and I work for Quangos, but not the same one. (laughs) Apparently it was the first song recorded for the album. And it was first performed live as early as September 1994. It's a fairly obvious dig at a myriad of sleaze stories that surrounded the final days of the major government in the mid-90s. You know, you're talking the likes of David Meller, Stephen Milligan in particular, you know, where the, you get the line, I'm wearing black French knickers under my suit. I've got stockings and suspenders on. I'm feeling rather loose. <sighs> I hate this. It, this is everything you said about why you didn't like stereotypes to me amplified several times it's ooh, i'm a naughty boy oh god it's so cringingly dated i do not like this song at all so i'm not as it's not great i mean don't get me wrong 
it's not it's not memorable. I can see there's there's a lineage between this and Country House sound wise. The the only thing I think that I can say in its favour is Coxon's guitars on it, particularly the the little freak out towards the end. Yeah, that's true. I'll give you that. But it's not great at all. It's it's quite as you say. It's very dated. It, it's very dated. Well, the whole the title. Yeah. Like when was the last time anyone used the term Quango? Last spoken by Ian Hislop on an episode of Have I Got News for You in 1996. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I think we just move on because it's not. It's not great, and it's not a memorable song either. Nope. Exactly. So we move on to He Thought of Cars, uh, which evokes an alternative reality right from the first line, in which the Berlin Wall has never fallen and Moscow's still red. The young man's dead, gone to heaven instead. Now. It has been suggested, I don't know if you picked up on this, Kev, but it has been suggested that the line, the young man's dead, gone to heaven instead, was a reference to Russian news anchor Vladislav Listyev, who was shot dead in March 1995, returning home from a live broadcast. The alleged, alleged, alleged (laughs) murder has never been solved. Um, No, I I hadn't picked up on that reference, I will admit. I, I, I say again, alleged murder, never been solved. <laughs> let's move on. Yeah, let's just move on. Don't want to be poisoned. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about feeling disconnected from the rest of society. You know, he thought of cars, where to drive them and who to drive them with, but there was no one. Uh, so that's that. there's that railing against consumerism and the detachment that comes with that. Now, I... Listen to this song again. I'll say again, it's probably 20 years since I've listened to this album. I think there's a lot of songs on this album whose messages are still relevant today. This more than any, actually, that sense of detachment, that sense of isolation. I don't know if you got that, but I certainly did. No, I mean, well, fuck you then. (laughs) I'm not sure what I think of it. So, (laughs) so hang on. I didn't say what I thought of the song. I'm going to read my next note. Okay. Hard to settle on what to think of this song. <laughs> so, and this will be the first time in, within this uh, clash that we've talked about his his playing. I like the bass on it. Mm. Alex James' bass is really good on it. And, and the general yes. kind of downbeat sounds um, I, I quite like. But again, it it doesn't grab me. It, there's, there's nothing like whilst I can see the themes and I understand them, like it never really gets its hooks into me it's again it's happening around me yeah okay we've written very very similar things then here so it's got definite this is a low vibes but again it's nowhere near as as good and as memorable as this is a low which closes part life i like the lament of the chorus as you said i think the alex james bass line is really really strong there is a lot to like on this song but I don't love it. I can't seem to get into it. I think thematically, again, I said there's things that are interesting there, the things that I think are still very relevant today, but I just can't seem to get into this song. No, it's not. Again, there's so many songs on this where you go, it's not bad. It's just, it happens. There's nothing There's nothing of major note that, that's pulling me in and make it, making it memorable. Exactly that. Okay, it could be you. So just one fact, this was released as a single in Japan. And the reason I want to mention that is because the cover for that single 
perfectly depicts what the song is about, which is the illusion that you could win the lottery. So the title of the song, It Could Be You, is the slogan of the National Lottery in the UK when it was first launched in 1994. So it's the illusion that you could win the lottery and that you could be celebrated by the tabloid press for your life-changing, in inverted commas, win. So yeah, it is a biting critique of the idea that nationalised gambling, the odds of winning the jackpot, currently standing at approximately 14 million to one, by the way, um, I think the theme comes across perfectly in the lyrics. All we want is to be happy in our homes, like happy families, be the man on the beach with the world at his feet. Yes, it could be you. Now, I've often wondered, does that, line the man on the beach the world of his at his feet is that a reference to the fall and rise of reginald perrin hmm. i've never th- i've never thought of that um possibly yeah it would be very blur to reference a 1970s sitcom but anyway maybe that's just me no i mean it's it's very as you say it would it wouldn't surprise me if that was a reference yeah i like this song i really like the melody in the chorus there's a nice guitar riff some really good drumming again from Dave Roundtree. The bands sound really tight all throughout this. The one thing I'd say is that there are the overly affected Cockney accents are very grating. <laughs> but I do like the song. Do you know what I mean, though? So I don't like it at all. And I, I had noted Damon's voice sounds very affected on it. And it like I couldn't get past that at all. the The only thing that I re the only part of the song that I enjoyed was the middle eight, which which I quite which I quite liked. But the rest of it, nah, didn't like it at all. Okay, uh, you're right about the voice. We've both said that. Th- th- there's things to like in it for me, and I, I I do think this is one where the criticism comes through. And um, well, I think I probably made my feelings known about the national lottery when I said it was nationalised gambling. Because that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, it is. All right. Should we go on to Arnold Same? Uh, I mean, based on your, well, introductory huff there, I'm guessing you're a big fan. Well, the main reason for my introductory huff is because it means I'm going to have to talk about the person who provides uh, vocals on this track. So the spoken vocals through the verse are spoken by then MP, former mayor of London and noted anti-Semite, Ken Livingston, about whom I will say no more. I am also not going to say anything else. <laughs> Would you care to disagree with anything I've just said? I mean, all, all the information you have given is factual. Exactly. Let's move on. Okay, so the title is a send-up of Arnold Lane by Pink Floyd, another song I don't like. <laughs> so the titular protagonist, Arnold Same goes through the same humdrum, boring routine, day after day, nothing ever changes. I couldn't care less what it's about. I detest this. I detested it in 1995. I detest it even more because of who speaks the vocals. It's a dreadful song featuring a dreadful man. I hate it. So I don't feel as strongly about it as you do. I actually don't mind it when the music kicks in and he stops talking. Mm, okay. But that's that's a very short period. Yeah, it's, it's about 10 seconds at the end. Damon sings a couple of lines and then it fucks off. There's about 30 seconds of music, which which I quite like. But yeah, it's not it's not great. It's it's pure filler. 
So I'm going to pick you up on something there. To me, this sounds very musical. And when we were going through Sergeant Peppers, one of the things you said about when I'm 64, which neither of us liked, is it sounds very musical. So I challenge your your judgment there somewhat. I am inconsistent. <laughs> With that, let's move on. <laughs> uh, only other thing to say on Arnold saying there there is a brief instrumental reprise of this as a sort of secret track at the end of Yuko and Hero. I don't like it anymore there either. Don't like it at all. <laughs> okay. We are racing towards the end. Globe alone. Yet more songs on the theme of superficial, materialistic people. This one about a man who basically lives by the latest trends and fashions, but doesn't make any time for personal relationships. So within the lyrics, he is because he saw it on a commercial break. And if he doesn't get what he wants, then he gets a headache because he needs it, wants it, almost loves it. He's here on his own, on globe alone, here on his own. Does anyone else think that Chuck Palahniuk might have heard this song when he was writing Fight Club? <laughs> Fight Club came out in 96, so it's entirely plausible. I really like this. I like this as well. It's quite punky. It's upbeat. Dave Roundtree's drumming is great. So my note here is, I want this from Blair rather than Cod Music Hall, Where's Me Washboard Stick? Well, exactly. Uh, and yet you've just said you don't hate Arnold <laughs> No, agreed. To me, so I've said, I've also noted about Dave Rantry's drumming. It's absolutely fantastic. This sounds like a bridge between two albums, not back to part life, but forward to what's on Blur. Mm -hmm. The heavy sound is obviously a lot more prevalent on Blur. I hated this in 1995. I didn't like it at all. Listening to it now, there's a hell of a lot more there than I ever gave it credit for. I really like it. Yeah, it's, it's really good. It is really good. All right. Okay. Well, I cannot believe how quickly we're going through. This is very, very unlike us. <laughs> Dan Abnormal. The song's eponymous hero is an anagram of Damon Albarn. Get it? <laughs> I mean, it does seem somewhat autobiographical, you know, from the opening lines. Come and entertain the town. It's Friday night and we're all bored, as if he's sort of some performing monkey whose mm -hmm. own wants and needs are completely secondary to the insatiable desires of the demanding public it's not exactly subtle with the last line of the song where he says but it's not his fault dan abnormals me yeah <laughs> like you you've really managed to um to fox the the listener there damon <laughs> uh the character of dan abnormal would reappear do you know when and where? I do not. So in the video to M.O.R. from Blur, who's a fucking banger, by the way. It is. Somewhat similar to the video to Sabotage, each of the members of the band sort of played a different character. And the caption says, when you see Damon with his balaclava on, Dan Abnormal is Damon Alba. Right, okay. I've seen that video and it just never, never registered. Well, there you go. What do you think about Dan Abnormal? So I don't like it. Um, it's got a good uh, Coxon solo on it. That's the saving grace. I think it's an example of how bloated this album is. The Great Escape is, it's Blur's Be Here Now. This this album could do with so much of an edit. Like there's there's tracks on here that are B-sides. There's tracks on here that, that aren't even good enough to be B-sides, I'd argue. 
and Dan Abnormal, it's not a great like there's so much meh, like and just filler and God, it's like eating eating packets and packets of fucking Rivita. <laughs> Do you remember cracker bread? Yes. Which was even more bland than Rivita. <laughs> Rivita, which tastes like wall filling. And fucking looks like that too. <laughs> so for, for the benefit Rivita company, we do not want free samples. <laughs> no, we do not. Fuck if off. Hendrix Gin are listening, we definitely do want free Hendrix Gin, though. We told you that a few weeks ago, and I've still not had any gin. Although... At the time of recording, that episode is yet to be published. Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> or keep it all, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll do with some wood stain. <laughs> um, uh, so, so I don't dislike Dan Abnormal. I don't have anything to say about it. it. It doesn't stand out to me as either good or bad, which is probably the most damning thing I can say. It's just... It's just there. It just happens. It just is. Yeah. It ju- exactly. It just happens, which you've said before. I-, I agree with what you said about it's a bloated album. What I will say is that Part Life's got 14 tracks on it. Blur's got 14, 15 tracks on it, as has 13. They did produce long albums, and there is not a single Blur album that you could play to me where I would go, every single track on there is mm-hmm. killer. There is always filler. So this was nothing unique. It just stands out more on this album because I don't think they knew quite what they wanted it to be. You said before, it's a very sclerotic album. I would describe it as chameleonic. It doesn't know what it wants to be. It's playing to too many audiences. And yeah, it could have done with someone to go, just bring it back in a bit, guys. Let's just, you know, giving away a bit for next week, obviously, but. I think we think very similar things here. Yeah, it it needs, as you say, like it's got a bit of the the park life's about it, but a kind of pastiche of park life. It's got yeah. it's got a bit. So global alone, it's got a bit of that blur. The 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 next album going on in it. It's also sort of harking back to modern life is rubbish. It's it's mm-hmm. not. It doesn't, as you say, it doesn't know what it wants to be, and it ends up falling between all all the different stools. Really. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think you're perhaps a bit harsh by saying it's there, be here now. I know what you mean, but it doesn't have the anywhere near the excess and bloated excess that be here now does. But anyway. I suppose it, it feels bloated because there's so much there's so much filler on it. Yeah, fair point. And speaking of which, we've still got two tracks to go. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Entertain me. Where to me, the themes, all of the themes of the album coalesce into one song. It's railing against the consumerization of every single aspect of life. And this is another one where to me, these themes speak clearly, even today, 25 years later. Oh, yeah, definitely. All people want to be is entertained. Even romance has become about instant gratification. At his and hers dating, bored minds agree. Requirements to be stated and replies awaited. She wants a loose fit. He wants instant whip. Guesstimates her arrival. Will she want it really badly? To be clear, I don't want any instant whip because Angel Delight is horrible. <laughs> Well, we disagree on that. So if um, if Angel Delight want to send some supplies, send them this way. 
Send it all to Kev because yeah. I am not interested. Not the butterscotch, though. It's shite. Okay. Oh, God. Horrible. Disgusting stuff. Yeah. Um, I fucking love Entertain Me. I think it's brilliant. So we are we are in sync on this one. It's got a really good bass line. Brilliant. I love the balance in the song. Graham Coxon's great on it. Yeah. I really like it. It's just, it's really good. It is really good. Baseline, yes. It's a baseline that puts me in mind of girls and boys. Yeah. The way that the vocals are emotionless, monotone, almost, I hate to use the word, almost Orwellian. Mm-hmm. Once again, it just evokes that dystopian sense of detachment that we talked about with the universal. God, oh, fucking great. Yeah, it's a really good song. All right. And shall we move like a rocket onto the album Closer? Yeah, let's do that. Yuko and Hero. Apparently, it was originally titled Japanese Workers, because that's what it's about. The backing vocals in Japanese are sung by Kathy Gillett. And it tells the story of the eponymous couple who, well, they work for the company that looks at a future. We work hard to please them. They will protect us. Those lyrics are repeated in Japanese later in the song, as I, as I just mentioned. So one thing we didn't talk about with Fade Away is that it, it is supposedly about Damon's relationship with, with Justine Frischman and how their busy lives were effectively driving them apart as a couple. This is another one where that is apparent. I mentioned earlier about a lot of these songs being autobiographical. You know, I never see you. We're never together. I'll love you forever. It's a really, really melancholic way to end an album. It's a really odd choice to to close the album. Yeah, because the the funny thing is, I do I do like it because it's it's really it's an odd it's an odd song and it's interesting. But as a closer, that's fucking yep. wild. It is wild. I do really like the sort of single piano chord that just fades into the background right at the end to give that sense of finality, if that's a word. It is now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I quite like this. Yeah, I, I mean, as I said, I, I like it. I just, I don't get why you would choose, like, so this is what I want to leave people with. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, but and again, that, that speaks to the sort of chameleonic, schizophrenic nature of the album. And there we are, 15 tracks. It's a long, old album. It is. So, I mean, the reviews, it was initially reviewed like extremely positively. Melody Maker awarded it 12 out of 10. I mean, that was, f- even at the time when I first heard the album, like that, that was fucking nuts. Yeah, exactly. So some of the reviews, David Kavanagh in Select, he said it was more mature and less boisterous than Park Life deeper and more rewarding. When The Great Escape ends, you don't think that was fun. You think, what was all that about? Well, that's fair, actually. Uh, He also said it was funny, brave, and heartbroken, and it has everything you could want. In the NME, their reviewer, Johnny Cigarettes, seriously? So NME. So he said, The Great Escape is a spectacularly accomplished and sumptuous, heart-stopping, inspirational album. He said that the album, even in the wake of a run of exceptional albums by British bands, here we go, sets a new standard for British guitar pop in the 90s. Wow. God. (laughs) So, as we've alluded to, that critical acclaim didn't last. 
didn't last for very long at all, in fact. And in fact, in, in, in a retrospective review in 2011 for the BBC, James McMahon said that it only lasted about as long as it took the publishers to realise Oasis would probably shift more magazines for them. He also said that the album, if it didn't kill Britpop, it certainly tore down the bunting from the party. So I think, and I, I assume you may well have seen a similar quote, Mark Burroughs in Drowning Sound. I think he he encapsulates it really well because like the, so it was initially massively overrated and then became this whipping boy. And so he felt that it then subsequently be underrated because there is there are some good things on there. Mm. And so he, he says, the great escape reveals itself as a flawed, melancholy, occasionally stunning and utterly bonkers piece of work. And I think he's right. Yeah, I think he's absolutely spot on with that. We'll come to Nobby McGee in a second. I just want to read one more retrospective review from Damon Albarn himself. So in 2007... He said, I've made two bad records. The first record, Leisure, which is awful, and The Great Escape, which is messy. He also said the album is an elaborate diary of a mad moment. Hard to disagree. You said messy. Yeah. He agrees. It is. It's all over the place. Yeah, it is all over the place. We've both said that. Okay, Nobby McGee. What did Robert Criscow say? Oh, God. Not very much. To be honest, not very much. He did award it a neither... Ratings, so neither good nor bad, which he signifies by like a frowny face type emoji, which anyway. Of course he does. <laughs> uh, apparently that means that it may impress once or twice with consistent craft or on a resting track or two, then it won't. I mean, to be fair, a stop clock on all that, but he's got a point there. <laughs> yeah, it, as critical as we are of Nobby McGee, the, he, is, he is right that... There are moments that are good and there are moments that are shite. Exactly. Okay, so you mentioned Mark Burroughs and Drowning Sound. I do think that it was overrated initially. Fucking 12 out of 10. Well, that was a melody maker for yeah. me. I hated that No wonder they went out. <laughs> exactly. And the enemy became shit as soon as Ed merged. <laughs> <laughs> I do think the backlash was harsh. It's The album is nowhere near as bad as some made it out to me. It's, it's certainly no be here now. To me... It, it isn't. The reality is it was never, ever going to live up to the hype that was built up around it. And again, we know that, that the record company and the band didn't do anything to, to, to play that down, but it was never going to live up to that hype. Perhaps the real legacy of the album is that the band themselves knew that and perhaps creatively it freed them up to be truer to themselves. And, and, at least in my opinion, they would go on to produce their strongest work only two years later. I think Blur is by far their best album. It's a fantastic piece of work. Yeah, possibly this broke the mould that Parklife had created for them. And the, yeah. the cheeky, chappy, cockney, wide boy, whatever you want to refer to them as. Um, the fact that this ultimately failed as an album and it enabled them to go their own way and do their own thing and create far, far better work. Absolutely right. And with that, I am happy to go on to best song, worst song. Yeah, I'm happy to move on. All right, okay. Uh, Go on, you go first. What's your best song? What's your worst song? So I'll start with best because it's easiest. It's Universal. 
it, it just is. It's the best song on the album by an absolute fucking country mile. It's still, as we said when we were talking about it, it's one of Blair's best songs. It's a phenomenal piece of work, and it, ne- I never tire of hearing it. Worst song? I don't know. There's so, there's there's a few. you got to pick one, mate. That's kind of the thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with Top Man because it really fucking annoys me. <laughs> Okay. But there's a there's a few on there that could have been chosen. Fair play. I'll, I'll go worst song first because it's no surprise. It's Arnold Same. Hate it. It's everything I dislike about Blur in this era. Cartoony, hammy, and with added anti-Semitism to boot. So not for me, <laughs> thanks. Just to be clear, the song itself isn't anti-Semitic, and nor, as far as I know, are any members of Blur. But yeah. <laughs> uh, and the best song is the Universal. It's not even worthy of a debate, as you said. It just is. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. All right. I think we're done, aren't we? I think I think we are. Okay. Uh, well, save one thing. It's your turn to tell people how to keep in touch with us. So, if you are a fan of pictures of a billionaire essentially riding into space on a giant space penis, um, <laughs> get him. Then. You can go on Twitter to see such pictures, or whilst you're there, you can check us out at Clash Album. If you're a fan of quality content, uh, you can go to our Insta page, which is carefully curated by uh, Sam, who you heard on our previous Clash. Uh, That's at Clash Album. Or if you're resolutely old school, it's albumclash at gmail.com. Um, Tim still hasn't been signed up for for any BDSM website, and he's really <laughs> desperate for that to happen. Other than the ones that um, but you're already I've subscribed to. <laughs> yeah, on the billionaire tax avoiders thing, did you see some of the posts that were likening his spacecraft to the rocket from 1980s? Porn parody Flesh Gordon. I did, I did, which is why I made the reference to Giant Space Penis. <laughs> Compensating for something, are we, Jeff? <laughs> Hank Scorpio would never need to fly to space in a penis rocket. You wish you were Scorpio. <laughs> okay, yeah, get involved, get in touch. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. You know, genuinely, it, it makes it easier for other people to to find us uh it also just means a hell of a lot to us thank you for listening the fact that so many of you still are implies to me at least that you're getting something out of the show so that's grand i guess so thank you (laughs) yeah thank you for like particularly our non-uk listeners who seemingly enjoy quite niche and obscure references to uh, 80s and 90s British television and adverts. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> commercials as well. <laughs> All right, good stuff. So next week, Kev is going to take us through Oasis seminal What's the Story Morning Glory. Until then, I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And we'll see you next time. Ta-da. Ta-da. Ta-da.